Welcome to Port City Politics. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman. And I'm WECT investigative reporter Michael Pratz. And it's time to talk about drugs. All right. So where do we want to start here? Well, we talked about this a little last week, but I, w- I want to continue the conversation because we were talking about the story you were planning last week and is now out, and we'll have a link to that on the page, about the real risk of fentanyl exposure. Yeah. So just a little bit of a recap. We kind of previewed this last week. Uh, as you mentioned, didn't go too in-depth because at that point I hadn't really talked to all my sources. That came out on Thursday, and I spoke with uh, medical experts, I'll just call them that. I, I believe every single person I spoke to uh, does have the doctor title. Some of them were PhDs, while some of them were MDs. Uh, but five different doctors from Duke University, NC State, Rutgers School of Medicine, Johns Hopkins School of Medicine, and Brown University School of Medicine. So a lot of big name, uh, well-respected medical facilities, a lot of them research hospitals. Um, And what every single person said here is the narrative that we've seen across the country from law enforcement officers um, having adverse health effects due to exposure to fentanyl or what is believed to be exposure to fentanyl. Um, We saw it here in New Hanover County two weeks ago, three weeks ago now, where a traffic stop turned into a detective getting hit with a bag of fentanyl. And he immediately passed out and had adverse effects and had to be Narcaned, and uh, he did make a full recovery. That's a problem. Uh, that in and of itself is a problem because drugs, bad. Um, fentanyl, terrifying. It is extremely deadly. And uh, just to be clear for anybody listening, this story was not, and we reiter- I reiterated it multiple times, this is not to give you the idea that fentanyl is safe. It's absolutely not, especially when you're talking about mixed in with street drugs. Um, Fentanyl is a medication used in hospital settings. I talked to an anesthesiologist who is very experienced with administering fentanyl. Um, Within a hospital setting, yes, it, it can be safe. A doctor is prescribing it and they are watching over you. This isn't something you get your wisdom teeth out and they send you home with a bottle of fentanyl. That's not happening. Yeah, so uh, we said this last week, but it's worth reiterating. Fentanyl is 100 times as strong as morphine. Yes. So there's a analgesic chart, which basically lists everything from, like, aspirin all the way up to what's called carfentanil, which is uh, another synthetic that's even more powerful than fentanyl. Right. But fentanyl's near the top, mm-hmm. and you would see this in burn units. You would see this in people with uh, chronic pain, you know, people who, you know, been in a terrible accident and had multiple surgeries, and they're building up a tolerance to heroin. But if you're just, if you are a casual or even, you know, consistent heroin user jumping, you know, an order or even two orders of magnitude in strength from what you're used to can Mm -hmm. easily kill you. So we are not in any way saying like, hey, fentanyl is just a walk in the park. No, not at all. And just for, uh, just anecdotally, this is what uh, I believe killed Prince as well as Tom Petty as fentanyl. So, um, and I'm sure you've heard about all of the overdose deaths in Wilmington, southeastern North Carolina and across the country. So again, uh, full disclosure, we are not saying fentanyl is safe. It is not outside of a hospital setting. I will say that because I don't want people freaking out if they go to the hospital and they say, we're giving you fentanyl. Um, That is a dose regulated by doctors. And there is a lot of science behind this. But what we've seen across the country are these videos, body camera footage, 
San Diego Sheriff's Department had one back in, I want to say, uh, December or later, later in 2022, where an officer was standing at the back of like, uh, looked like an Explorer or Tahoe or something like that, had the, the rear tailgate lifted, uh, was testing some fentanyl or what was believed to be fentanyl. I believe the test came back, said it was. Uh, within a minute or two of him testing this, he goes pretty much uh, catatonic while standing up and hits, hits the ground pretty hard, passes out. He's Narcan by um, his training officer. And, you know, overall scary situation. We saw another one in, uh, from the Tavares Police Department down in Florida, uh, an officer, this time it was a female officer, um, she's seen, I, I don't think she necessarily passed out, but she kind of went down, she's sitting on the curb, body camera footage uh, shows her kind of out of it and loopy. So people want to know what's going on with this, because as we mentioned, I believe we played the clip last week, it was from a 2016 DEA video, and uh, press release is kind of a bad word for it. It's not exactly a press release, but it was like a... Kind of like a PSA almost. Yeah, it was a PSA of sorts to for law enforcement in particular and first responders saying, hey, if you're near fentanyl, you could be in grave danger uh, just by breathing in little particles of fentanyl um, or having it get on your skin. The science doesn't back this up. And the interesting thing, after talking to all of these uh, these medical experts, they all said the same thing. We have not seen a single verified toxicology report that any of these people, any of these law enforcement officers have been exposed to or have had a uh, fentanyl poisoning. It's, it's the scientific word, the medical word for an overdose. Um, there's no evidence of this actually happening. And furthermore, that's not how fentanyl works. Again, this is a medication. They know how it works. You know how to administer a dose. Um, one really good point, I, I spoke with uh, a toxicologist from Johns Hopkins who said, think of it this way. If fentanyl was as deadly as, you know, just being able to touch it and you die or getting it into the air, there would be so many people dead because there's lab techs. There are uh, DEA customs agents who come across this stuff unknowingly. It could be on your suitcase. It could be, um, you know, drug smugglers bringing it through, a bag bust open. We don't see these deaths. We don't see these adverse reactions, for the most part, outside of law enforcement. So what's going on? Well, after talking with them, we mentioned this last week. A lot of it is uh, one, of the, one of the doctors told me, uh, they call it the nocebo effect, which is the opposite of a placebo, right? So placebo, you take something and it could be a sugar pill and you think you're getting the same benefits. And it's a very real phenomenon. I mean, placebo effect is very powerful in the human mind. You just think that this is happening, um, that the pill you took is, let's say, Adderall, and suddenly you're able to focus if you have ADHD. That's how they do double and triple blind studies, right? nocebo effect is kind of the opposite where you're not taking anything and you're still having these reactions and that's what they believe is going on here it's not that law enforcement is making this up or faking it it's the fact that they believe what they've been told by the DEA and their uh, supervising and commanding officers right they're they're being told all these things and if you were told on a regular basis hey don't get close to this you're going to die if you just breathe in two grains worth of sand, which is what all these 
different PSAs really said. It was like two grains worth of sand is enough fentanyl to kill you. Uh, Side note about that. Everyone I spoke to also had a problem with the fact that law enforcement is promoting this as, oh, there was enough fentanyl to kill all of Los Angeles. It's like, I guess technically by dosage, you could theoretically extrapolate that out. Um, But it's the transmission of that drug that isn't really, it it just, it sends a message that isn't really, it it spreads more panic. Yeah. And I want to get to that in a second, but- also, one of the things that some of the experts you spoke to and some of the officers I've spoken to on background have told me is that not all, but in some of these videos, the symptoms appear to, and this is, you know, only from the video, this is not a medical examination, but the symptoms appear to line up more closely with an anxiety attack. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fentanyl is a CNS, it's a depressant. Right. Um, and so you see people's breathing slow and then stop. What you don't see is hyperventilation. Right. Now, sometimes you do, people can have adverse reactions, but in general, when you see someone on an opioid, right, they're mm-hmm. they're sedated, right, uh, and these people appear panicky, um, yeah. trouble breathing, but they're still lucid and saying, "I'm having trouble breathing." Right, that looks more like a panic attack, which lines up more with this, you know, symptomology. The symptomology lines up more with someone who has been, you know, told repeatedly by people they trust that if they're exposed to this stuff, they could die, and then they're exposed to it. Right. In the example we gave last time, somewhat facetiously, was if you're told bees can kill you and then you're exposed to a bee. But I think, you know, that's part of why you did this story was mm-hmm. it's maybe unnecessarily putting additional stress on police officers. And the other thing I wanted to say is that there's also an understandable incentive for law enforcement agencies to want to share these videos mm-hmm. because it's not a secret that public perception and, and public opinions of law enforcement um, is is not great these days. It's probably down up here with us journalists in Congress. Mm-hmm. And impressing upon the public how dangerous the job is and, you know, the bravery of officers that is involved in doing that job, I can see why a law enforcement agency would want to do that. But the point I think some of these experts were making is that this creates um, an unnecessary and, and maybe even dangerous sense of how dangerous fentanyl is when it comes to people not getting involved, Mm -hmm. you know, a paramedic or a cop or even just a good Samaritan. Yeah, exactly. So the idea of being exposed to fentanyl is going to kill you if you just are in the same room, you breathe it in. Uh, First of all, as I mentioned, that's not how fentanyl works. It doesn't vaporize into the air. It is very, very stable. So if there is a pound of fentanyl sitting in between you and I at this desk right now, um, just out in the open, Unless we were to turn on a fan and blow it and really get a mouthful of powder, it's not going to jump out at us and just poison us. It's not a it's not a substance like anthrax, which can, you know, aerosolize pretty easily and just gets those spores into the air. It's very, very stable. Um, so, yes, if you have that perception that, oh, my God, he has fentanyl on him or she or whomever, Uh, has fentanyl on them. They're overdosing. I want to help. I have Narcan, but I'm really worried. Let me go get PPE. Let me go get a mask and gloves before I administer this. When someone is overdosing, they, uh, what kills you from an opioid overdose is you stop breathing. It depresses your respiratory system to the point where you can no longer breathe. So that same Hopkins uh, toxicologist I spoke to said, reversing an opioid, saving someone's life who is overdosing is actually really easy. You can give them rescue breathing and you give them Narcan. Um, And everyone I talked to again said, 
keep Narcan on you. The, this stuff is out here. Um, even if you are not a drug user, you don't plan on um, abusing it, there's a chance, and, you know, it's a, it's a small chance, but there's a chance you come across somebody who is overdosing. If you have naloxone uh, or uh, Narcan on you, it's, it's life-saving, and it really, you can't hurt anybody by, you know, administering Narcan, uh, whether it's through the nose or whether it's a shot. So better safe than sorry is kind of how they're looking at this. But the mass idea that we're seeing with law enforcement officers is overwhelmingly it is not backed by science. The DEA has since pulled the video and the the PSA release that they had written up about the dangers of fentanyl, um, about being exposed to it like this. But they never issued any sort of mea culpa. They never really retracted that position. They just kind of quietly pushed it under the rug. That press release is still live on the DOJ's website, as is the video. Um, But the DEA, it's just a 404 broken link page now. So that kind of goes to show that the science wasn't there. Um, Real quickly, just in terms of transdermal, which is through the skin, uh, we talked about through the air, doesn't happen that way. Through the skin contact, that's another thing. If you if you touch it, you're not going to get hurt. Um, those I spoke to did say, you know, if you get it on your hands, if you if you get it on your arm or your clothing, uh, common sense here. You you don't want to go out of your way to touch it. I mean, I wouldn't go play in a in a you know powder mountain of this right. stuff. Right. Let's not make snow angels in the fentanyl. Yeah. No. Not at all. But you. You can touch it. It's not going to kill you just by touching it. Uh, And transdermal applications through a fentanyl patch is a thing. But it took over $100 million for this company to figure out how to transmit fentanyl through the skin. If it was easy, they wouldn't have had to do that. Exactly. So uh, bottom line is if you come in contact with fentanyl, take common sense. Uh, Everybody said, I'm not going out of my way to touch this stuff, but if I can save a life or... If I just come into contact with it, I'm not worried about it. Wash your hands with soap and water. Don't use hand sanitizer. If you use alcohol on your skin, there's a chance that that absorption rate is now a little bit higher, and you might be able to get it through uh, skin skin contact. But regular soap and water will wash it away, and you have nothing to fear. Uh, And again, nobody was picking on cops here. I I spoke with... uh, one doctor from from Brown University who was a law enforcement officer all the way from beat cop to chief of police for 23 years. And his big thing was, you know, I care deeply about the mental health of cops. And this is so stressful. Believing this myth really leads to burnout and it leads to these other instances um, of having these adverse reactions and this this fear fear-mongering, really, that is unfounded in science is putting a lot of stress on cops, and that's not good for anybody either. So that's kind of where we are. Um, If you see these stories, and, you know, interestingly enough, well, not really, uh, a lot of the doctors I spoke to, um, they they blamed us. They blamed the media in large part because a lot of the times we get these press releases from police departments and we just put out what the cops are saying. And you and I have been very vocal about not being a mouthpiece 
for a police department, for any sort of law enforcement or government official or anyone for that matter. Reporters, media companies, before you're putting these things out, they, they were pretty much begging, please stop doing this. Check your facts. Ask those follow-up questions. Yes, it might be uncomfortable asking the cops, like, well, do you know this isn't really how it works? What do you say to that? Um, but that's your job as a, as a reporter. And on the larger scale of the general public, sharing these videos on Facebook and, you know, creating this false panic just helps spread this fake narrative. And that's, that's kind of where the big problems lie. Yeah. So another drug-related story I want to talk about. And this is something that ECT reported. It was kind of a quick report, and it had to do with Columbus County uh, Board of Commissioners. And this was, I believe, in mid-January. Mm-hmm. Um, they All the counties in, in southeastern North Carolina have been doing this. So they were looking at their slice of the opioid settlement. And this is the settlement that uh, North Carolina Attorney General Josh Stein negotiated um, with opioid distributors mm-hmm. and uh, creators. I think Johnson Johnson was one of them. And... You know, it's it's hundreds of millions of dollars all over this all over the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, Columbus's county, uh, Columbus County's share of that is eight million dollars, and so they've got you know it's like a half million dollars a year basically because mm-hmm. it's a sixteen million dollar uh, series of, right. of payouts. So they um, the lion's share of this year's funding is about two hundred eighty nine thousand dollars, and it's going to the Healing Place here in New Hanover County. Uh, that's the peer led abstinence based. Um, for a long time called Treatment Center, and put a pin in that, mm-hmm. um, that's uh, funded by Trillium, run by the Healing Place of Kentucky, uh, and it's uh, New Hanover County is responsible for, like, the building and long-term maintenance. Right. So that's good um, on paper, right? It's a um, considerable amount of money, and it, it goes to reserving, I believe it's 10 to 12 beds out of the 200 total that are, I believe it's 100 for men, 100 for women. Right. Um, that are, that's at the Healing Place. So people from Columbus County can go. And, uh, and stay at the healing place. Follow-up. Follow-up. I got some questions. Yeah, so my question is, uh, we saw with, uh, with New Hanover County and Wilmington's Joint uh, Committee on Opioid Funding Distribution in the county, uh, the healing place was notably nowhere to be found on the proposed draft plan. I don't believe they've actually approved any plan yet, but they're getting close. They're getting close to presenting it to their uh, respective boards, both the county commissioners and the city of Wilmington. Um, and I asked about that and got a pretty canned answer from New Hanover County. They didn't really go into detail, but they did say uh, this year none of the funding is allocated to the healing place. Now, this facility was millions of dollars to construct. I don't want to put a price tag on it because I don't know the exact numbers, but I, I believe it was in the $20 million range of county taxpayer money, which, again, a lot of people, most people that I've talked to are very supportive of the idea of having a place for, uh, for people, you know, struggling with substance abuse. And it, it's also a homeless shelter. It provides food. It provides clothing. Right. Nobody, nobody I've talked to is really having a problem with the concept here. It's the execution that people have had a problem with. We've talked in depth about the, the transition from uh, the idea that Coastal Horizons was going to run this, and now we have the Healing Place of Kentucky. But that is, uh, again, we've done entire segments on that. But the other issue is Josh Stein when he came out with this opioid settlement uh, funding program back in, I don't know, May or June of last year, uh, he made it very clear that if you weren't giving met, uh, methadone or suboxone, which is uh, medically assisted treatment to 
come off of uh, opioid medications, you would not be eligible to receive any of this opioid settlement funding. The Healing Place has been adamantly against. It's been an abstinence-based program from the start. Uh, I believe it. it's a 12-step program as well, or at least it, it's some sort of... According to their webpage, it's, it's NANA. So it is Alcoholics okay. Anonymous and yeah. uh, Narcotics Anonymous. So it is a 12-step-based, faith-based program that is against medically assisted treatment yeah um, in fact they only um they're initially not even going to allow mat on the on the campus mm-hmm. um and they were handed down new guidance um, from the department of justice saying that you would be in violation of federal law that this the, would be discrimination yeah the ada uh, against the american with disabilities act um so what they are now and so it was pretty clear that it was only under a threat of you know, federal suit yeah. that they were saying, okay, well, if you can find a way to get MAT off campus, we won't, we won't kick you out. Um, but this was not their choice. This was, you know, at the direction of the federal government. Yeah, exactly. And I do have the question of, and, and this will be a question for follow-up with the, with the healing place and with people who try to go there. Um, just because they say they're going to allow it, how much are they really going to allow? Because they've been adamant that they are not allowing this, uh, allowing MAT, that they're abstinence-based. Um, you know, if, if you have a couple people who are waiting to get in line, uh, waiting for a bed here, and they're on Suboxone or Methadone versus someone who is, you know, willing to go the abstinence route, sorry, we don't have any beds open. That, that's my concern about this, is how is this going to be enforced? It's, it's on paper that, oh, yeah, we'll allow it, but realistically, 100 beds for men and women are probably going to fill up pretty rapidly. And if it's a long-term treatment plan, uh, treatment facility, it's theoretically possible that you don't have people who are on MAT getting in the door first. So, yeah, I, I do see the potential for a lawsuit if they do not stick to what they've committed to. Yeah. Um, if that situation shows up and they are and it can be shown that they are giving preferential treatment to people who are not on MAT, mm-hmm. then in the eyes of the law, that's like saying, like, oh, we've only got one bed left. We're going to let this white person in. We're going right. to let this straight person in. We're going to let this man in, right? Yes. So they're, I'm not saying that they're doing that. I'm not saying they will do that, but that is something that there's the disconnect between their philosophy and what they're being forced to do by federal law right. creates a, you know, the potential for that to happen. So here's the other question I have is that Josh Stein came here to Coastal Horizons uh, last year, and he talked a very good game mm-hmm. about how MAT is the gold standard. It's the only thing he believes people should be using for treatment. Obviously, the healing place of Kentucky and Trillium disagree with him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's at stake here with the lack of clear answers, because you've got a real disconnect between what Josh Stein, who in addition to being the AG, is also running for governor. Mm-hmm. Um, he recently announced, this is, I think, the earliest... Uh, anyone has announced in a long time. Shoot um, your shot. Shoot your shot. Two years to campaign, right? But he's clearly at odds with Trillium. Right. Because um, Trillium doesn't seem to agree with him. So how can Columbus County spend opioid settlement money on the healing place if the healing place does not use MAT, right? There's a real disconnect between what Josh Dine is saying and what Columbus County is doing. Mm-hmm. So I called the attorney general's office. Mm-hmm. And I want to just thank up at the top here, uh, Laura Brewer, mm-hmm. um, 
for going round after round with me uh, in trying to get to the bottom of this. And unfortunately, she's kind of handcuffed to some very jargony language. Right. And so I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but there is a very dry kind of procedural, um, almost contractual language here about, about that it really lays out what you can and cannot do. Mm-hmm. So what I was trying to say is what is actually happening and it seems to be, it comes down to whether we call this a treatment center or recovery housing. Right. Because if you call it a treatment center, then it has to provide MAT mm-hmm. because that's the only treatment that is prescribed under the opioid settlement mm-hmm. funding arrangement. But if it's recovery housing, right, the idea is to house people who are in recovery, then their their method of recovery is up to them. Right. And the funding from the opioid settlement can go to the recovery housing mm-hmm. as long as they don't exclude people who are getting MAT, say, somewhere else. Right. So this sounds like semantics, but it's interesting. And if you go back through county press releases over the last four years, they have consistently referred to uh, the Healing Place as the proposed treatment center. And on Facebook, uh, the Healing Place of New Hanover County um, refers to itself as a treatment facility. Mm-hmm. But recently, New Hanover County has started calling... Um, the healing place, a recovery center. So this yep. seems like a, a very jargony, very technical end runaround where people can spend opioid settlement money, which was, in Josh Dine's words, only for MAT on things that have no MAT. Right. And I think the reason that maybe um, we're, we're still looking for a comment for Josh Dine for this, where there's more work we have to do, mm-hmm. but I think the Attorney General's office will be squarely about this because they don't want to head-on collision with Trillium. Yeah, and interestingly enough, as you mentioned, uh, the county is starting to call this differently. Uh, but if you go to nhc.gov, uh, nhcgov.com, and then go to the Healing Place of New Hanover County page, uh, they have changed the language uh, at the very top. But under the construction and operations, it still says the Healing Place of New Hanover County is a 200-bed treatment facility. So. That's what they're calling it, but in the same thing, they're they're calling it something different at the top. Uh, so it'll be interesting after this podcast. I'm going to keep an eye on this thing, see if it changes. Um, County, if you're listening, uh, if you do change it, we'd we'd love to know why. It's not to um, to say you're wrong, but I'm just curious as to the language if it does change, uh, because you're right. I've heard this called a treatment facility, a treatment center. Um, multiple times. I also heard it called a detox facility. And so some of this is just sloppy language used by the press. Right. Right. And a failure to distinguish what's detox. Mm-hmm. Like the harbor is detox. You come in, you have heroin, alcohol, barbiturates in your system. You've got to get those out of your system. You've got to go through detox before you go to treatment and recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, for almost any kind of treatment center, they want you to be sober when you get in the door. Right. And for uh, opioids, this um, this involves some really painful uh, withdrawal symptoms that can be ameliorated with medication, or you can go you can go Miles Davis style and just bite the bullet and ride it through. But in the case of barbiturates and alcohol, uh, the withdrawal, depending on the severity of your abuse, can kill you. So you right. need to titrate. So barbiturates and alcohol have the same effect, um, basically neurologically. So they don't have to give you tiny bits of vodka. They can give you decreasing doses of barbiturates right. until you can, because basically what happens is um, 
because alcohol is a depressant, mm-hmm. your body has jacked up your epinephrine, your adrenaline through the roof. Right. And when you take away, it's basically like you're running with a parachute and then you cut the parachute off. Right. And you go flying like Wiley e. Coyote, except that means that you, uh, all of your needles go red. And you, and you seize and Yeah, die. and it is the same with uh, benzodiazepines, like Xanax, uh, Valium, all those drugs. Uh, and the severe symptoms of withdrawal for these, um, from personal experience, there is not a snowball's chance in hell I would ever go to a detox facility that doesn't offer medication assistance. A dry detox. A dry detox is insane to me because especially for alcohol, benzos, and barbiturates, as you mentioned, uh, without proper medication, coming off of those drugs can kill uh, the seizures you get from uh, from a drug like Xanax. Uh, are, it, it's, a, it's a terrifying withdrawal system uh, that happens to your body. You need medication. You need Depakote. You need anti-convulsants to prevent these seizures. And if they're not offering any sort of medical treatment through a detox, uh, I would, I would, I'll go out here and say that is extremely unsafe in my opinion, uh, that people can die from DTs, uh, from seizures, grandma seizures. Uh, it, it's terrifying to me to think that there's going to be a dry detox facility. Yeah. And I'll also say, you know, most of the people of in my family and my friends who have been through heroin addiction, um, you relapse because you don't want to go through withdrawal. Yes. And if it's an open campus and you have the opportunity to leave and score. You will probably leave and score. The incentive to do that is monumental compared to the incentive to continue to be in pain. Yes. All right. So that's detox, right? Mm-hmm. Treatment is the actual, like, you know, you're you're talking about your problems. You're talking about the underlying stressors that are leading you to use. We're talking about the 28 days. So yeah, to 28 speak. days. Yeah, to um, because you probably weren't living a, a perfect, happy life, and then just decided that uh, you know what, it's time for some heroin. Right. And then you know, recovery is also like where you are living, and you're. Some people say you're probably in recovery for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, but recovery is a place to stay while you you know put the pieces of your life back together. Because usually, not usually, but in many cases, when you've been through substance abuse. Um, your resume's got some holes in it. Yeah. Your housing situation might be spotty. So these are different. Treatment, recovery, detox, these are all different things, and they've been used interchangeably. So that's, I think, part of the problem. Mm-hmm. All right. To wrap this all up, none of us are saying anything bad about the healing place. It's great that there is a, a shelter. It is great that there's a place for people for whom peer-led, absence-based treatment works to mm-hmm. go. Mm-hmm. And it just seems... I'm troubled by the disconnect between Josh Stein, the attorney general, one of the highest officials in our state, coming here to Wilmington and saying in no uncertain terms, the opioid settlement money, you know, goes to MAT. Mm-hmm. And then there being, a, you know, a, an end runaround big enough to drive a quarter million dollar budget item through. Yeah, exactly. It, it's definitely challenging. And I just want to laugh a little bit about saying he is one of the highest ranking officials in the state. When we're talking about drugs, we mean top ranking. Officials. We mean top ranking. Yes. Sorry. Apologies. Uh, he is not the highest. Uh, Josh Stein is not high. I'm not sure who that who that honor would go to, but there's probably someone out there. Speculation for another time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's kind of where I think we can we can leave this conversation. It's again, the healing place, the need for a treatment center and detox are absolutely there. Um, I don't think anybody is saying, no, we don't need this. 
but it's the runaround here calling this a residential living facility, which it is in part. I'll give them that. But if it's inpatient, if it's in-house and you're, you know, staying in this facility, I've never seen uh, residential residential recovery homes are like halfway houses where you uh, live in a, a group home of sorts. Um, that to me is residential facilities, not a inpatient 28-day, 30-day, 45-day, whatever it may be, long-term inpatient facility is a treatment center. It's, it's the definition of it. So calling it residential recovery, uh, I just, I, I have some questions about that, and I hope we can get the attorney general to, uh, to weigh in on it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for this week. All right. Um, like I said, we are in the middle of reporting this. So these are, I hate doing that we're just asking questions, but really are at this point just asking questions. Right. Um, we're, not, we're not pointing the finger saying that, there's, that Columbus County is acting badly here. Mm-hmm. I think they are spending money to help people who live in Columbus County dealing with substance abuse. Yeah, and it's, it's great. It is a obvious issue that, honestly, everybody in the country could have gotten ahead of the eight ball, but hindsight's always twenty twenty. So uh, making up for it now and really trying to help people in need great thing to do. Absolutely wonderful. Having 200 beds for 100 for men, 100 for women. Again, great idea. It's the execution and the the language that we're really questioning here. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there for now, and we will see you next week. All right. We'll see you then.